0: Section six of Chapter twenty three of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. T. Macduff. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty three, Section six. The Commons had, soon after they met, appointed a committee to inquire into the state of trade. And had referred to this committee several petitions from merchants and manufacturers who complained that they were in danger of being undersold and who asked for additional protection a highly curious report on the importation of silks and the exportation of wool was soon presented to the house it was in that age believed by all but a very few speculative men that the sound commercial policy was to keep out of the country the delicate and brilliantly tinted textures of southern looms, and to keep in the country the raw material on which most of our own looms were employed. It was now fully proved that, during eight years of war, the textures which it was thought desirable to keep out had been constantly coming in, and the material which it was thought desirable to keep in had been constantly going out. This interchange, an interchange, as it was imagined, pernicious to England, had been chiefly managed by an association of Huguenot refugees residing in London. Whole fleets of boats with illicit cargoes had been passing and repassing between Kent and Picardy. The loading and unloading had taken place sometimes in Romney Marsh, sometimes on the beach under the cliffs between Dover and Folkestone. All the inhabitants of the southeastern coast were in the plot. It was a common saying among them that if a gallows were set up every quarter of a mile along the coast, the trade would still go on briskly. It had been discovered some years before that the vessels in the hiding places which were necessary to the business of the smuggler had frequently afforded accommodation to the trader. The report contained fresh evidence upon this point. It was proved that one of the contrabandists had provided the vessel in which the ruffian O'Brien had carried Scum Goodman over to France. The inference which ought to have been drawn from these facts was that the prohibitory system was absurd. That system had not destroyed the trade which was so much dreaded, but had merely called into existence a desperate race of men who, accustomed to earn their daily bread by the breach of an unreasonable law, soon came to regard the most reasonable laws with contempt, and having begun by eluding the Custom House officers, ended by conspiring against the throne and if in time of war when the whole channel was dotted with our cruisers it had been found impossible to prevent the regular exchange of the fleeces of cotswold for the alamodes of lyons what chance was there that any machinery which could be employed in time of peace would be more efficacious the politicians of the seventeenth century however were of an opinion that sharp laws sharply administered could not fail to save englishmen from the intolerable grievance of selling dear what could be best produced by themselves and of buying cheap what could be best produced by others the penalty for importing french silks was made more severe an act was passed which gave to a joint-stock company an absolute monopoly of lustrings for a term of fourteen years the fruit of these wise counsels was such as might have been foreseen french silks were still imported and long before the term of fourteen years had expired the funds of the lustring company had been spent its offices had been shut up and its very name had been forgotten at jonathan's and garraway's not content with prospective legislation, the Commons unanimously determined to treat the offences which the Committee had brought to light as high crimes against the State, and to employ against a few cunning mercers in Nicholas Lane and the old Jewellery all the gorgeous and cumbersome machinery which ought to be reserved for the delinquencies of great ministers and judges. It was resolved, without a division, that several Frenchmen and one Englishman who had been deeply concerned in the contraband trade should be impeached. Managers were appointed, articles were drawn up, and preparations were made for fitting up Westminster Hall with benches and scarlet hangings, and at one time it was thought that the trials would last till the Partridge shooting began. But the defendants, having little hope of acquittal, and not wishing that the peers should come to the business of fixing the punishment in the temper which was likely to be the effect of an August passed in London, very wisely declined to give their lordships unnecessary trouble and pleaded guilty. The sentences were consequently lenient. The French offenders were merely fined, and their fines probably did not amount to a fifth part of the sums which they had realized by unlawful traffic. The Englishman who had been active in managing the escape of Goodman was both fined and imprisoned. The progress of the woolen manufacturers of Ireland excited even more alarm and indignation than the contraband trade with France. The French question indeed had been simply commercial. The Irish question, originally commercial, became political. It was not merely the prosperity of the clothiers of Wiltshire and of the West Riding that was at stake, but the dignity of the Crown, the authority of the Parliament, and the unity of the Empire. Already might be discerned among the Englishry, who were now, by the help and under the protection of the mother country, the lords of the conquered island, some signs of a spirit feeble indeed as yet, and such as might easily be put down by a few resolute words, but destined to revive at long intervals, and to be stronger and more formidable at every revival. The person who on this occasion came forward as the champion of the colonists, the forerunner of Swift and of graddon was William Molyneux. He would have rejected the name of Irishman, as indignantly as a citizen of Marseilles or Cyrene, proud of his pure Greek blood and fully qualified to send a chariot to the Olympic race course, would have rejected the name of Gaul or Libyan. He was, in the phrase of that time, an English gentleman of family and fortune, born in Ireland. He had studied at the temple, had travelled on the continent, had become well known to the most eminent scholars and philosophers of Oxford and Cambridge, had been elected a member of the Royal Society of London, and had been one of the founders of the Royal Society of Dublin. In the days of Popish ascendancy, he had taken refuge among his friends here. He had returned to his home when the ascendancy of his own caste had been re-established, and he had been chosen to represent the University of Dublin in the House of Commons. He had made great efforts to promote the manufactures of the kingdom in which he resided, and had found those efforts impeded by an act of the English Parliament which laid severe restrictions on the exportation of woolen goods from Ireland. In principle this act was altogether indefensible. Practically it was altogether unimportant prohibitions were not needed to prevent the ireland of the seventeenth century from being a great manufacturing country nor could the most liberal bounties have made her so the jealousy of commerce however is as fanciful and unreasonable as the jealousy of love the clothiers of wilts and yorkshire were weak enough to imagine that they should be ruined by the competition of a half-barbarous island an island where there was far less capital than in england where there was far less security for life and property than in england and where there was far less industry and energy among the laboring classes than in england molyneux on the other hand had the sanguine temperament of a projector he imagined that but for the tyrannical interference of strangers a ghent would spring up in connemara and a bruges in the bog of allen and what right had strangers to interfere not content with showing that the law of which he complained was absurd and unjust he undertook to prove that it was null and void early in the year sixteen ninety eight he published and dedicated to the king a treatise in which it was asserted in plain terms that the english parliament had no authority over ireland whoever considers without passion or prejudice the great constitutional question which was thus for the first time raised will probably be of opinion that molyneux was in error the right of the parliament of england to legislate for ireland rested on the broad general principle That the paramount authority of the mother country extends over all colonies planted by her sons in all parts of the world this principle was the subject of much discussion at the time of the american troubles and was then maintained without any reservation not only by the english ministers but by burke and all the adherents of rockingham and was admitted with one single reservation even by the americans themselves down to the moment of separation the congress fully acknowledged the competency of the king lords, and commons to make laws, of any kind but one, for Massachusetts and Virginia. The only power which such men as Washington and Franklin denied to the imperial legislature was the power of taxing. Within living memory, acts which have made great political and social revolutions in our colonies have been passed in this country, nor has the validity of those acts ever been questioned, and conspicuous among them were the law of 1807, which abolished the slave trade, and the law of 1833— which abolished slavery. The doctrine that the parent state has supreme power over the colonies is not only borne out by authority and by precedent, but will appear, when examined, to be in entire accordance with justice and with policy. During the feeble infancy of colonies, independence would be pernicious, or rather fatal to them. Undoubtedly, as they grow stronger and stronger, it will be wise in the Home Government to be more and more indulgent. No sensible parent deals with a son of twenty in the same way as with a son of ten. Nor will any government not infatuated treat a province such as Canada or Victoria in the way in which it might be proper to treat a little band of immigrants who have just begun to build their huts on a barbarous shore, and to whom the protection of the flag of a great nation is indispensably necessary. Nevertheless, there cannot really be more than one supreme power in a society. If, therefore, a time comes at which the mother country finds it expedient altogether to abdicate her paramount authority over a colony, one of two courses ought to be taken. There ought to be complete incorporation, if such incorporation be possible. If not, there ought to be complete separation. Very few propositions in polities can be so perfectly demonstrated as this, that parliamentary government cannot be carried on by two really equal and independent parliaments in one empire and if we admit the general rule to be that the english parliament is competent to legislate for colonies planted by english subjects what reason was there for considering the case of the colony in ireland as an exception for it is to be observed that the whole question was between the mother country and the colony the aboriginal inhabitants more than five-sixths of the population had no more interest in the matter than the swine or the poultry or if they had an interest It was for their interest that the case which domineered over them should not be emancipated from all external control. They were no more represented in the Parliament which sat at Dublin than in the Parliament which sat at Westminster. They had less to dread from legislation at Westminster than from legislation at Dublin. They were indeed likely to obtain but a very scanty measure of justice from the English Tories, a more scanty measure still from the English Whigs. But the most acrimonious English Whig did not feel towards them that intense antipathy, compounded of hatred, fear, and scorn, with which they were regarded by the Cromwellian who dwelt among them. For the Irish e. Molyneux, though boasting that he was the champion of liberty, though professing to have learned his political principles from Locke's writings, and though confidently expecting Locke's applause, asked nothing but a more cruel and more hopeless slavery. What he claimed was that, as respected the colony to which he belonged, England should forego rights which she has exercised, and is still exercising over every other colony that she has ever planted. And what reason could be given for making such a distinction? No colony had owed so much to England. No colony stood in such need of the support of England. Twice within the memory of men then living, the natives had attempted to throw off the alien yoke. Twice the intruders had been in imminent danger of extirpation. Twice England had come to the rescue and had put down the Celtic population under the feet of her own progeny. Millions of English money had been expended in the struggle. English blood had flown at the Boyne and at Athlone, at Agrim and at Limerick. The graves of thousands of English soldiers had been dug in the pestilential morass of Dundalk. It was owing to the exertions and sacrifices of the English people that, from the basaltic pillars of Ulster to the lakes of Kerry, The Saxon settlers were trampling on the children of the soil. The colony in Ireland was therefore emphatically a dependency. A dependency not merely by the common law of the realm, but by the nature of things. It was absurd to claim independence for a community which could not cease to be dependent without ceasing to exist. Molyneux soon found that he had ventured on a perilous undertaking. A member of the English House of Commons complained in his place that a book which attacked the most precious privileges of the Supreme Legislature was in circulation. The volume was produced, some passages were read, and a committee was appointed to consider the whole subject. The committee soon reported that the obnoxious pamphlet was only one of several symptoms which indicated a spirit such as ought to be suppressed. The Crown of Ireland had been most improperly described in public instruments as an imperial crown. The Irish lords and commons had presumed, not only to reenact an English act, passed expressly for the purpose of binding them, but to reenact it with alterations. The alterations were indeed small, but the alteration even of a letter was tantamount to a declaration of independence. Several addresses were voted without a division. The king was entreated to discourage all encroachments of subordinate powers on the supreme authority of the English legislature to bring justice to the pamphleteer had dared to question that authority to enforce the acts which had been passed for the protection of the woolen manufacturers of england and to direct the industry and capital of ireland into the channel of the linen trade a trade which might grow and flourish in leinster and ulster without exciting the smallest jealousy at norwich or at halifax the king promised to do what the commons asked but in truth there was little to be done the irish conscious of their impotence submitted without a murmur the irish woolen manufacturer languished and disappeared as it would in all probability have languished and disappeared if it had been left to itself had molyneux lived a few months longer he would probably have been impeached but the close of the session was approaching and before the house met again a timely death had snatched him from their vengeance and the momentous question which had been first stirred by him slept a deep sleep till it was revived in a more formidable shape, after the lapse of twenty-six years, by the fourth letter of the drapier. Of the commercial questions which prolonged this session far into the summer, the most important respected India. Four years had elapsed since the House of Commons had decided that all Englishmen had an equal right to traffic in the Asiatic seas, unless prohibited by Parliament, and in that decision the king had thought it prudent to acquiesce any merchant of london or bristol might now fit out a ship for bengal or for china without the least apprehension of being molested by the admiralty or sued in the courts of westminster no wise man however was disposed to stake a large sum on such a venture for the vote which protected him from annoyance here left him exposed to serious risks on the other side of the cape of good hope the old company though its exclusive privileges were no more and though its dividends had greatly diminished was still in existence and still retained its castles and warehouses its fleet of fine merchantmen and its able and zealous factors thoroughly qualified by a long experience to transact business both in the palaces and in the bazaars of the east and accustomed to look for direction to the india house alone the private trader therefore still ran great risk of being treated as a smuggler if not as a pirate he might indeed if he was wronged, apply for redress to the tribunals of his country but years must elapse before his cause could be heard. His witnesses must be conveyed over 15,000 miles of sea, and in the meantime he was a ruined man. The experiment of free trade with India had therefore been tried under every disadvantage, or, to speak more correctly, had not been tried at all. The general opinion had always been that some restriction was necessary, and that opinion had been confirmed by all that had happened since the old restrictions had been removed. The doors of the House of Commons were again besieged by the two great contending factions of the city. The old company offered, in return for a monopoly secured by law, a loan of seven hundred thousand pounds, and the whole body of Tories was for accepting the offer. But those indefatigable agitators who had, ever since the Revolution, been striving to obtain a share in the trade of the eastern seas, exerted themselves at this conjecture more strenuously than ever, and found a powerful patron in Montague. End of Chapter 23, Section 6 Recording by S.T. Macduff